Today, we tell the story of a towering figure in Taiwan's fight for democracy, Shi Mingde. Twice he was sentenced to life in prison on charges of rebellion, and twice he emerged unbroken to lead the fight for freedom. He cut a dashing, idealistic figure, and the local media dubbed him a romantic revolutionary. Not only that, but here and abroad, he was known as the Nelson Mandela of Taiwan. The Taiwan History Podcast, Formosa Files, is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Frank C. Chen Foundation. Formosa Files. Taiwanese activist and politician Siming-de passed away on January 15th, 2024, which was his 83rd birthday. Shi was one of the biggest figures in the Dang Wai movement. So Dang Wai means outside the party, so opposition to KMT one-party rule. He made great contributions to the democratization of Taiwan and has often been referred to as Taiwan's Mandela. Mandela as in Nelson Mandela of South Africa because of his fight for democracy and his long time behind bars. Shimingda spent 15 years in jail and then a few years later did a 10-year term, so a total of roughly 25.5 years and more than half of it in solitary confinement. Just a year short of Mandela's 26 and a half years in prison. And their timelines were quite similar. They were both released in 1990. And four years later, in 1994, Mandela would become the first black president of South Africa, the president of the country's first fully representative election. And Shi Mingde was elected legislator for Tainan County in the legislative UN, the parliament. It was the first free direct legislative elections in Taiwan's history. And in 1994, he was elected as chairman of the Democratic Progressive Party. So both men went from prison to power in a very short time. But it's fair to say their last years took very different trajectories. We'll get to that twist in the tale later. But first, let's go back to the beginning of the story. Shi Mingde was born in the city of Kaohsiung on January 15th, 1941. So 1941, right? It's the very tail end of the Japanese-ruled Taiwan. And during his life, he was actually known by his Japanese name, Nori. His father was a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, specializing in bone setting. His father was quite old, in his late 40s. And here's something that shows how much life has changed. His father had married as a teenager, had three sons from his first marriage, all of whom died in infancy, leaving only five surviving daughters. In order to continue the family line, he remarried and to a woman less than half his age, and they had five sons and one daughter. Shi Mingde was the fourth child. In the 228 incident of 1947, Sumingdo's father was arrested and tortured, and after his release suffered poor health, his father passed away five years later when Shi was 11 years old. Sumingdo was just six years old when 228 happened, but his family had a front row seat. They lived opposite the Kaohsiung train station, and that was one of the places where you might say there were like mini battles. And the family witnessed the death of students who resisted the nationalist soldiers. Shi graduated from senior high school, which was actually a lot of education in those days. Most Taiwanese just did elementary or junior high, and he entered a military academy. This was in 1959. Okay, so we're not talking about compulsory military service, right? He chose to join. 
And I wonder why. Mengde is quoted as having once remarked that he applied to the military academy with the intention of leading an armed uprising to overthrow the Jiang family's regime. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, it might be just a bit of reworking of one's personal backstory with the benefit of hindsight. But you know what? At that time, a military coup looked more likely than a democratic movement for change in Taiwan. Yes, yes. And, you know, young listeners might not remember, but <laughs> military coups were once a common feature of, of international news, with decolonization in Africa and elsewhere, also Cold War intrigue. Yeah, military coups, quite a common thing. Graduating from the artillery school in 1961, Shimindo was commissioned as a second lieutenant and stationed in Jinmen as an artillery officer. The next year, 1962, at the age of 21, he gets arrested for alleged involvement in the quote-unquote Taiwan Independence League case, um, an organization that Shimingda formed, and they called a study group. The case involved more than 30 people, mostly students from military academies and universities, including his two older brothers. After being detained for 11 months, he was sentenced to life imprisonment for conspiring to overthrow the government. Detained for 11 months. Sounds bad. Uh, it's worse than prison in a way. Uh, when you're detained, it's that period of time when you're getting interrogated for details, for names of co-conspirators. And Mingda suffered torture during interrogation, resulting in the loss of all his teeth. He was wearing full dentures in his early 20s. So he's in prison, but not the infamous one on Green Island. Well, not yet anyway. Correct. He's in Taiyuan prison in Taidong, southeastern Taiwan. So according to an account from political prisoner Wei Tingchao, one of two students of Dr. Pan Mingming who were arrested with him in 64 for advocating for a democratic government, he, so this political prisoner Wei, Wei gives an idea of the conditions at the time. Cells had an area of roughly 23 square meters and had to house more than 20 prisoners each. Each prisoner only had a 30 centimeter by 180 centimeter floor space to sleep on. So I'm 191 centimeters. Wow. Yeah, uh, one foot by six feet. Not enough space for everyone to sleep at the same time. And imagine that in summer. Oh, yeah, in Taidong. <laughs> um, cozy, how's that? <clears throat> <laughs> okay. Because the prison was relatively lenient and also so crowded, some of the prisoners could work near the prison. Uh, they went out and mostly did farm work. Others worked in the prison compound, cooking, doing laundry and such. Sure was not one of the people who were allowed out to do something, you know, like uh, whatever, working outside. but. That seems to have suited him. The prisoners were allowed to read and write so he could study. Yes, so the prisoners horribly crowded, but with some degree of freedom. That's not going to last, though. The political prisoners are plotting not just a prison break, but they want to spark an island-wide revolution. And this will be called the Taiyuan Incident. Yes, we like to affix the word incident to a lot of things, but uh, yeah, you can look it up in Wikipedia if you're interested. It's um, something that happened in February of 1970, 
The plan didn't involve only political prisoners taking over the prison or escaping. They had recruited numerous prison guards, also some people on the outside, some sympathetic indigenous men. This was a, you know, Aboriginal indigenous area, the prison, Taidong, that, that area. We don't have time to go into the details, but the plan was for them to seize a nearby army arsenal, seize a radio station from which they would broadcast a, a message, and also seize a ship or two docked at Taidong Harbour. Uh, things didn't go to plan, and before long, the ROC police and elite military units were on the scene. All the escaped prisoners were soon arrested. Yeah, I think five men were executed for this act of rebellion after a lot of interrogation, and there was a lot of interrogation. The core of escaped leaders did not implicate anyone else. There were some doubts about whether Shimingdo had any involvement, but it seems probably not. Not long after the incident, all prisoners of Taiyuan prison were transferred to the so-called Oasis Villa on Green Island. Hmm. Nice branding, but not a villa in any way. So then in 1975, after Chiang Kai-shek's death, Jiang's successor was Yan Jiagan, the forgotten president between CKS and his son Jiang Jingguo. So President Yan Jiagan ordered a reduction of sentences. Jiang Jingguo was premier at the time and basically the real man in charge. He ordered the Minister of Justice to shorten the sentences of criminals in accordance with the will of uh, his late dad to, quote, humanely and virtuously love the people, end quote. Yeah, this is really an, an ancient Chinese tradition. New emperors, right? They'd, they'd show their benevolence by releasing prisoners. And not only, not only China, but, you know, lots of places. Yes. In this case of benevolence, it was implemented on the 100th day after the passing of President Chiang Kai-shek. Perhaps 7,000 criminals were released as a result of their shortened sentences, but very, very few were political prisoners. Very few political prisoners. Um, in this case, it's better to be a, a robber than a democracy advocate. Barabbas! Mm -hmm. Barabbas! We choose Barabbas! Less of a threat. Shiming De was finally released in 1977 after serving 15 years in prison. But, you know, most of us, 15 years, man, you'd come out broken and scarred and scared. But to his credit, Upon his release, Shimingda immediately threw himself into working with the opposition movement. Yeah, and it's more than working with the movement. He quickly became one of the leaders. He was the Dungwai campaign team general director. He was certainly not shy about advocating for the lifting of martial law and for an end to the ban on forming new political parties. While he's doing this, the political landscape is going to get struck by lightning. December 15th, 1978, President Jimmy Carter announces the United States will switch formal diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing, and that this would happen in just two weeks, January 1st, 1979. And in the coming months, the American military would be totally withdrawn from Taiwan. And there were upcoming elections in Taiwan, legislative elections which were to take place on December 23rd, 1978. Oh, so just one week after the announcement. Right. But the elections were immediately cancelled by Jiang Jingguo. 
Some listeners may be thinking elections during this time of authoritarian one-party rule. But yes, there were some elections in Taiwan at that time. Um, Not surprisingly, they were minor. We had um, elections for mayor and, you know, smaller um, cities or boroughs and that kind of stuff. But it's interesting to note the great majority of political seats were devoted to representing places in mainland China, places under communist control, places that had been under the commies for quite a while. So our political structure in Taiwan was frozen in time from when the ROC had actually controlled China. These positions uh, were forever positions, so no need for re-election. These guys just got older and older. Yeah. So this is 1979, and despite gradual reform, up until the 1990s, the old thieves, the name they used for these politicians representing the mainland, uh, the political seats they, uh, they held, they still made up about three quarters of the central parliamentary seats. I've seen numbers of 88% for the now extinct National Assembly and 52% of the the parliament, uh, legislative seats, uh, were kept for these fantasy lifetime positions. Yeah, it's amazing to think, right? A guy representing Sichuan is voting in the legislature in Taiwan. Yeah, decade after decade. (laughs) The Taiwanese native opposition had been expecting to continue to make some gains in that election that was canceled, but their expectations were like, you know, we'll, we'll get something. It'll be more symbolic than anything else. Mm-hmm. After Washington recognized Beijing, the mood in Taiwan was one of fear. Government news agencies didn't help calm things down either. They were angrily denouncing the betrayal by the United States. And the general populace feared that with American protection gone, the PRC would shortly be attacking Taiwan. Or, under PRC pressure, President Jiang Jingguo might cut a deal with the PRC for reunification. So in the Dong Wai movement, there were leftists who favored reunification. But thankfully, these people were a minority. Shi Mingde was in the majority who wanted a separate, independent Taiwan. And many Taiwanese activists felt that the time for native Taiwanese to assert their rights to forge the nation's path forward had come. Of course, easier said than done. Definitely. So one workaround of this ban on political parties other than the KMT was establishing a magazine. In June 1979, Formosa Magazine was born in Chinese, Meili Dao Zazi. The magazine established county offices around the island, offices they called service centers, and Shi Mingde served as the general manager, but he handled the political side more than, you know, writing editorials. Quite clever, the opposition setting up a political party structure, uh, but without using the term political party. Yeah. December 10th, 1979. The Formosa magazine sponsored a demonstration in Kaohsiung in celebration of Human Rights Day. The demonstrators had initially gathered outside the Formosa magazine office on the corner of Zhongshan First Road and Datong Second Road. The authorities had given permission for this. Shi Mingde and another leader, however, decided to take the demonstrators, of which there are about a thousand, north about two blocks to the Kaohsiung Circle, where there would be speeches. And if you've been to Kaohsiung recently, you know that we have a MRT station right about that spot 
and the name of the station is Meilidao. Ah, okay. That's where you transfer the, uh, the lines, right? That's right, Formosa Boulevard Station. So the rally there, or we can say demonstrations, they turned violent as the police moved in, demonstrators reacted, things escalated. This became known as the Kaohsiung incident or the Formosa incident. While the authorities and the government press played up the violence of the Kaohsiung incident, there was comparatively little violence, actually. At least no one was killed. There was a debate within the KMT about what to do, and the hardliners won. There was a wave of arrests about two and a half days after the Kaohsiung incident had ended. Fourteen people were arrested, but Shi Mingde was not one of them. Somehow he managed to escape the building he was in, and in the following days, more arrests. And Shi Mingde's American wife, Linda Arigo, was deported. Shi Mingde was on the run for quite a time. He escaped capture December 13th and was finally arrested January 8th. Uh, I've done the math. 26 days. Pretty embarrassing for the authorities because you've got a country full of informers and security personnel, and there was a really healthy reward for information leading to his arrest. It started at 500,000 NT, 13,000, almost $14,000, but was increased to 3 million NT. Uh, John, your math is better than mine, but at that time, that would have been a, a fortune. Uh, a lot of money, yes. <laughs> yeah. During those 26 days on the run, she stayed at several places, relying on the help of uh, sympathizers. And I read that he underwent some plastic surgery on his chin, I think, in order to disguise his appearance. Anyway, we fast forward five weeks after his arrest, February 20th, 1980. It's announced that eight key defendants would be tried in a military court on charges of rebellion. The eight defendants would become immortalized as the Kaohsiung Eight, many playing a major role in Taiwan's democracy movement. Among them were two women, Lu Xiaolian and Chen Ju. So if you listen to season two, episode 36, You'll learn about Lu. She became vice president under Chen Shui-bian. And Chen Ju was a almost 12-year mayor of Kaohsiung City much later on. Shi Mingde stood out as already having been a political prisoner. Remember, he'd done a 15-year sentence for sedition from 1962 to 1977. According to the indictment, quote, Shi Mingde hoped to escalate a mass rally to the stage of violence as a step in carrying out the so-called power seizure plan to attain the final goal of subverting the government, end quote. The trial took place in a military court, the first court of the Taipei Jingmei Military Detention Center. Now, this place is the Taiwan Human Rights Jingmei Park, a very interesting place to visit. The third day of the trial was devoted to interrogating Shi Mingde. He was calm and confident and was able to explain and promote the cause at some length. So here's a sample of, of what he said. Quote, We felt after the United States and the Chinese communist bandits established diplomatic relations in order to resist Chinese communist unification, that we must awaken Taiwan's more than 18 million people. For more than 30 years, Taiwan has already been independent. Nice, nice. Uh, Taiwan has already been independent for decades, yes, so he is, by definition, not an independence activist. He's just promoting and uh, educating people on democratic principles. 
Yeah, and you also note that in his comments, he you know resisting the communist unification. So you know he's he's staying within the ROC sort of limits to a degree. Yeah. Yes. He continued to tell the court, quote, Our purpose in running the magazine was to request the government to improve such questions as the living situation of the people and democratic politics. This included the prohibition on political parties, the prohibition on newspapers, martial law, and the quote-unquote 10,000-year parliament. <laughs> 10,000-year parliament. Nazi Germany, I see you, your thousand-year Reich, and raise you. A 10,000-year parliament. <laughs> yeah, Wanshui, right? 10,000 years. It's a very common term here. Tons of expressions wishing eternal good fortune. Mm -hmm. And in relation to the parliament, it's a reference to the <clears throat> temporary provisions, amendments to the constitution that Jiang Kai-shek made to extend the terms of the National Assembly members to 10,000 years, basically symbolizing a perpetual or indefinite term. So Schirmingde continued, quote, I used the authority as general manager of Formosa magazine to push for the establishment of service centers in various locations in order to organize and develop a political party without the name of a political party, to plan a foundation and promote marches, end quote. Incredible. He's been surprisingly honest. The presiding judge was also surprised by the candor. He asked, do you mean that at the beginning the motivation was not simply to run a magazine? And she replies, quote, correct. Running a magazine was a method to promote democracy, end quote. The presiding judge asked if the leadership of the magazine discussed Taiwan independence. And Shi Mingde says, Quote, I've already expressed this in the written record. For the past 30 years, Taiwan has already been independent, in fact. Okay, later on, on day 8 of the trial, this is March 27th, 1980, we see Shi Mingde addressing the court again. He restated the points he had made earlier, and he apologized for his happy demeanor in court previously. He explained that uh, only yesterday had he heard the tragic news about Lin Yixiong's family. Yeah, Lin Yixiong was a fellow defendant, one of the Kaohsiung eight on trial. He also later went on to have many posts in the government. But during this trial, his mother and twin daughters were brutally murdered in their home, like while he was on trial. This crime remains unsolved, but but suspected to be perhaps a rogue element in the KMT, um, asking some gangster muscle to make a statement. But yeah, unresolved murders. So Shi Mingde had a solemn demeanor this day, and he expressed his sorrow and said something like, if it would help calm the resentment of the nation's people, and if it would help unify the nation and create social harmony, I am quite willing for the presiding judge to sentence me to death. I beg you, I beg you, or Needless to say, this is emotional stuff, and many people in the court were sobbing. The presiding judge called the court back to order. The verdict was a long time coming. On April 18th, 1980, three weeks after the military trial finished, the judges gave the sentences. Shi Mingde received the longest, a life sentence, 
The others got 12 to 14 years. Heavy sentences, especially when you consider the weak government case, the lack of evidence for those charges of rebellion. And Taiwan's government was under a lot of human rights pressure at this time. They had hoped that having the trials open to the media would uh, show both domestic and international audiences that their legal system was a just one. Man, you know, it's just funny how out of touch authoritarians become. They, they end up buying their own propaganda. The trials were a public right. relations disaster for the government. The idea of the Kaohsiung incident being a rebellion or sedition was ridiculous. I mean, there was some violence from the demonstrators, but more violence came from the security forces. And overall, it wasn't really much of a violent incident anyway. Right, which could not be said about the interrogations. It was clear from the trials that confessions had been obtained by sleep deprivation and even getting physical, yes, torture, to gain the confessions of the defendants. The prosecution had a very, very weak case. The Kaohsiung incident trial made the Kaohsiung eight, we talked about before these eight people, look like martyrs. It made them bigger, more important figures than perhaps they really were. And they would later play leading roles in Taiwan's democratization. Shi Mingde became the fifth chairperson of the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, and he also served as a lawmaker or a legislator. As well as the defendants going on to much bigger things, the lawyers who defended the accused, they would become a second generation of opposition political leaders, most notably Chen Shui-bian, president between 2000 and 2008. But these two old comrades, Shi and Chen, they would become bitter enemies not long after Chen became president. Mm, so this time around, Shi Mingde spent 10 years in prison. During this time, he went on numerous hunger strikes in protest of mysterious deaths where KMT security agencies were suspected. He was frequently sent to the hospital and force-fed. In July 1987, Taiwan officially lifted martial law, which had been in place for 38 years. President Jiang Jingguo had originally planned to reduce Shi's sentence, but the prisoner refused, insisted he was innocent. He demanded unconditional release. He wanted, quote, dignity over amnesty, quote. A sad footnote to this is at this time, his, his brother joined a hunger strike in support of, her, of him and probably died as a result. He died a little later of uh, heart and lung failure. Shi Mingde was eventually released in 1990 during President Li Donghui's tenure. So Li Donghui actually revoked the verdict of those involved in the Kaohsiung incident. And then after Shi Mingde's release in 1990, he served in various democratic Progressive Party, you know, DPP posts throughout the next decade. But after the DPP victory in 2000, Shi drifted apart from the party and then made an abrupt turnaround. In 2006, uh, he led a large-scale protest movement against President Chen, who was then facing corruption charges. So we mentioned Nelson Mandela earlier, and though Shi Mingde was often compared to him, his political actions in his later life definitely tarnished his legacy. He would become an unpopular figure among those who had once admired him so much. 
And in a follow-up bonus episode, we will discuss the man in more personal detail, his strengths, his weaknesses, his triumphs, his fall from grace, with his former wife, Linda Arrigo, an American activist and researcher who married Shiminda in 1978 during that brief time between prison sentences. And she has some very interesting things to say. I highly recommend you listen to her talk. So let's end today with a little clip, a, a teaser of sorts, from that interview with Linda Arrigo. Thanks for listening. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. Bye. The government was continually threatening and arresting people, and then we would have a big rally and a big march, and usually they would be released. So this went on and escalated over a period of a year until the Kaohsiung incident of Human Rights Day. That's December 10th, 1979. And my house was uh, raided and several people were arrested at my house, Tanju Lu Xiolian. Shiminda escaped through the back. Amazingly, this guy is, deserves to have uh, you know stories written about him, how he could escape when the house was totally encircled. He had a messianic complex. He liked to be, you know, at the head of a, a mob of thousands of people. But I would say the fact that he was turned by his own arrogance, turned by blues and even people from the PRC camp flattering him, uh, I think we have to account to his as a great strike against Taiwan's overall advance because he was the fighting spirit in many ways. He really was the fighting spirit. And for him to go down on that account and to, you might say, be corrupted, perhaps with money, but also certainly with women, uh, certainly with flattery, was a great strike against Taiwan's move towards self-determination.